to episode 30 of the Talentopoly podcast, where we'll be discussing managing a software project. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and as usual, I'm joined by Brandon Corbin. Hey, Brandon. Hi, how are you? How are you doing? Doing well. We have a special guest tonight, David Christensen. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Cool. So let's first get into what we're drinking, and then we will move on to the topic of the episode. Brandon. Uh, I am drinking Coppola again. Imagine that. <laughs> no, no, no. Here's the funny thing is, is we might have skipped a week, um, but we I've actually had some wines in between the uh, break that we took from podcasting. Mm. Um, but uh, now I'm back to my Coppola. I was like, oh, I got to get some wine for the show. And so I ran in and grabbed the old trusty. Love it. It's smooth. It goes down like butter. It's the podcast wine. It is. Coppola. 19. I'm curious now, though. What else? 21. What did no. you have since we last podcasted together? Oh, I don't remember. It was that good. Uh, yeah, I know. L'Apostle? L'Apostle. Um, that's all I remember from it, L'Apostle. It was a red. It was good. Um, I don't remember how much you paid for it. Like, since I wasn't knew we weren't going to be talking about it, I didn't really care. Yeah. Right on. Good. And you? What did, are you drinking? Uh, I'm having some Sam Adams Alpine Spring. Oh, aren't you the hipster? I guess so. This was a sampler case that I picked up at Sam's Club. and has some new <laughs> Sam Adams in it. Yeah. Super, you were super hipster until you said you bought it at Sam's, Sam's Club. Sam's Club. I love buying my beer at Sam's Club. It's great. So that's what I'm drinking. It's a strange name for a beer. Uh, kind of an odd logo as well, but it's good beer. I like what it. Was, what, what was the name of it? Alpine Spring. It makes me think of like just water or something, or, like, or deodorant, or deodorant. True, like that, ch- or you know, like cheap soap or like Irish Spring soap or something. <laughs> but uh, it, it's not too bad. It's Sam Adams. I mean, they make good beer. I might be the proud owner of AlpineSprings.org. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> All right, David. What what great be- beverage are you drinking tonight? You know, I'm rolling with the uh, nice, cool water from the tap. Nice. Some tap springs. I'm yeah. rolling. Damn. <laughs> it's too late for caffeine. It is. This is a bit, we're recording a little bit later than usual tonight. So uh, yeah, we'll, thanks we'll see if we can all stay awake. I think we will. I've, I've already, yeah, this is, this, is, this is way past my bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Before we get started. And this way, this this is how I usually end the podcast as far as my liquor intake or wine intake. Um, so we might be in trouble. I might not make it through the whole show just just so we're all clear. Oh, this if is you hear, get if good. you hear this, and then I'm gone. <laughs> it's your head hitting that's the desk. That's my head. Yeah, and I'm 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 out for the for the rest of the show. Nice. So I got a little bit of Talonopoly news here before we get onto the topic of the episode, and that news is that we now have a podcast network. Which means that we have one other podcast joining the Talentopoly podcast on Talentopoly.com. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's let's back it up. Back it up. How does this affect the brand? So here's how it works. Dev1.tv is this great podcast. They've done 12 episodes now by a Talentopoly member who actually got inspired to do podcasting by listening to this horrible podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It really is a great podcast. I actually highly recommend it. I love listening to it. His, not ours. His, yes. Okay, okay. This this is derivative dribble. His is actually meaningful, (laughs) and you will learn something. So 
Uh, and so here's kind of the idea behind it is that there are people out there doing great podcasts and it's, it's not always easy to find those, those diamonds in the rough. I mean, you can go on to Instacast and iTunes and search under, under technology and you're going to find all the five by five TV podcasts. Yeah. You know, you're going to find a lot of the usual suspects. But you're not going to find the Talentopolies or the yeah. eight of five. <laughs> you are or not. The, yeah. Right. And some of them are actually legitimately very good. I mean, I, I like a lot of what five by five is doing, but some of the stuff and some of those episodes are just pretty boring. Yeah. And so there are those other ones out there that I really like listening to. IRQ conflict is another one of them. Uh, and so here's the, this is the pitch behind it. If you have one of those great undiscovered podcasts and you're doing great content, then you could come be part of the podcast network at Talentopoly. <laughs> you don't have to move your podcast. You keep doing it where you're doing it, just like you're doing it. We basically are syndicating it, just like radio syndicates radio shows. So what we do is suck in the RSS feed, import those episodes, make them playable right through Talentopoly, but also links back out. If somebody wants to go to the original page, they can go to your your page. And, and the episodes are actually included in the newsletters and get a fair bit of exposure because of that. So Dev1 TV is kind of our guinea pig in this. And it, it was really their idea to say, hey, could you know how about doing this? And I loved the idea. So we whipped it up and put it into place. And now it's up on Talentopoly. Hot damn, brother. Yep. That's the Talentopoly that's a, that, Podcast that's Network. Awesome. <laughs> that's so we'll awesome. see what happens. It's an experiment right now. I love it. I love it. Cool. And more people need to do it. It's not as hard. I mean, it it you don't want to know like all the shit that goes into it, but it's worth it, right? Yeah. It's it is. It's power to the people that it is the it, it is really a means for us to be able to have and say whatever we want and to get our own agendas passed. Um, so more people need to do it, and that's awesome, dude. That's the first time I've heard it, by the way. So I like it. Good. Well, we got Brandon's endorsement. So cool. Let's move on to the topic. Managing a software project. What we're going to be talking about are a bunch of the tools and and methodology that David uses over at Developer Town on his projects over there. And I think we're going to get into some of what you use for your uh, startup uh, troop track as well, right, David? Yeah, that's right. Hope so. So let's let's just launch right into it. What what are some of the tools, and just kind of walk us through how you use some of these tools, David. So right now, uh, our, kind of our standard project stack is uh, Pivotal Tracker is the core of our project management methodology. Um, you really could do it with spreadsheets or Post-it notes on the side of a house or other things, but I like Pivotal Tracker because it really enables the remote relationships that we have, right? We're not always right next to our our. Um, our partners or our clients, right. you know, that, that we're building the software with. So uh, Pivotal Tracker makes that easier. And just uh, for those that don't know, I mean, I love Pivotal Tracker. I've been using it just uh, for people that are not familiar. Basically, it's an agile, it builds itself as an agile project management tool. And you've, it's kind of like the, what's the Kanban boards? Is that what they call them? Yeah, similar to Kanban board. Yeah, in, in some ways. In some ways, where but on you don't have lots of columns. You just have three. So you have what you're currently working on. You have the backlog, and then you have the ice box, which those are the things that are not prioritized, but you don't want to forget about. And right. it it monitors because you tell it every time you start a pro, one of the tasks. 
and you've estimated on a three-point scale, you can change that, but make it you know any type of point scale you want, but it defaults to a three-point. And it, it says, oh, well, you, you hit start and finish on that task, so I know it took you about four hours to do what you consider a two-point or a one-point task. And so then it can start to estimate after you, you do a bunch of those and say, well, your velocity for this week based on prior weeks, it's got some algorithm to do that, uh, is 12, let's say. So then right. it can very quickly estimate out, just instantly it'll estimate out, oh, this in the order that you have these tasks, you can get these done this week, these will be done ne- the week after that, and boom, 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 and carry you all the way out to however far out you have tasks. Yeah, the key, some of the keys to using Pivotal Tracker for predicting the future reasonably well involve... Um, one, having a good scale for estimating stories and also having a good reference structure for estimating stories against. Um, for a scale, I use a modified Fibonacci sequence. Which is <laughs> Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Modified Fibonacci sequence. How do you modify the Fibonacci, the Fibonacci sequence? Well, so you cheat a little bit. And it goes like this. It goes 0, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 20, 40, 100. And those are for the points you can assign? Yeah. So you, so you change it to be a 0 through 100 scale? Well, except I only really do it up to 13 in Pivotal Tracker okay. most of the time. And then I'll throw a label called Epic on anything. <laughs> I love it. And Pivotal Tracker. But now that Pivotal supports Epics, I might consider doing it differently. Right. But the reason why I use the Fibonacci sequence is because... As an estimate gets bigger, the less you are able to estimate it accurately. So, like for example, if I asked you, um, what's the likelihood that you're going to have a glass of wine tomorrow evening, what would it be? Brandon? Uh, 50%. <laughs> 50%. What is the likelihood that you're going to have a glass of wine on August 25th, 2012. 50%. No. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you that. Right. So as things get further out, it just gets harder and harder to predict. And so, and so that's why um, we don't do 25-point stories or 26-point stories. We don't even do six-point stories. Shouldn't you be breaking stories into more granular pieces, finer pieces, if they've gotten that big? Once you start getting closer to actually doing those stories, you should break them down. But I have no problem with throwing a 100-point story out there for a data warehouse or some reporting tool that is, you know, two months away. Right. Well, and that's also good, too, because I've heard common criticism of Pivotal. It seems great, and you start putting all these tasks in there, and before you know it, you're just drowning in tasks. Your icebox has 200 tasks in there. Your backlog's going out a year and a half from now, and then you stop using it because it's just completely overwhelmed you. So I kind of yeah. like the idea of like stuff that it's almost like you should create a rule even where anything beyond two months from now just represent the whole nebulous thing as one task, which will be bro- – so I really like that. That sounds yeah, great. I, I, I agree with that. I, I really don't think you ought to plan too far in advance. It's just it just doesn't make really it doesn't really make sense, you know. Yeah, it's uh, ever changing. You can't plan that far out. So the other thing that I think is real critical is having a good um, reference point for estimating against. And for for example, you have to define what some 
what one at least one of the items on your scale is in terms of size. So like for me, a three is a standard Rails resource, by which I mean I'm going to be creating um, a full set of a full set of restful actions for something. I'm going to be creating a database table. I'm going to be creating a model that represents it, you know, and it it's a it's a a simple resource, but it's going to have you know all the views for rest, you know, so and then a controller. So it's going to have all that stuff. I call that a three. And then when I'm estimating stories, I do it based on okay, is this bigger or smaller? than a, just like a standard Rails resource, right? So like, for instance, if someone said, we want to be able to manage users, and that's a story, and I say, well, what's on a user? And they just give me like name, address, phone number, that kind of stuff, that's going to be a three. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm looking at some other story, and I'm comparing it to, I compare it to that story, and if it's like, users, but they really also want to keep track of all the jobs that the person has had on that form, right? Then I've got a nested form and I've got um, has many relationships and stuff like that. Then I'm going to go with a five. Makes sense. Well, so let me ask you though, is this, is this, this is based on though your past experience, correct? I mean, obviously. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the standard I've used for years now. Yeah, so, uh, but a lot of it, it's not necessarily that you're applying something that, that can be quantified exactly, right? Yeah, it's, more, it's more of a much more of a gut feel because you obviously understand the technical side of what's going on. Absolutely. Okay. And that and is part of the problem with the pivotal points system. A lot of people really have a problem with the arbitrary nature of it. You've got to really clearly define, from what I've found at least, you got to, across the team, everybody needs to be assigning roughly the same point values to the same time-consuming tasks. You can't right. be wildly different, or the velocity calculation is just going to be pointless. Yeah, and there are, there are two things you got to be careful about. One of them is you have to have that reference scale, and you have to publish it. So your client needs to know what it is, and your coworkers on the on the team need to know what it is. Yep. And they all need to use the same scale. And for the most part, at Developer Town on our Rails projects, we we use we all use that scale. So that's a three for everything. The other thing is, is you don't want to tie that to time. And so let's just use me and um, and Miles Starrett as an example, right? Miles is an awesome programmer, probably like four times better than me. So like. When he estimates a story, he should still call it a three-point story, even though he might be able to do it in three hours. And I have to, and I take six. And the reason we do it that way is because you don't want to start thinking about things in terms of time, because human beings are horrible at estimating time. We are good at estimating relative complexity. Like if I if I gave you a bunch of dogs and told you to put them in order from smallest to largest, you could do that easily. <laughs> but it, when we're estimating how long something takes, there, and there are lots of studies that support this. We're really bad at, at guessing yeah. how long something will take. Right, unless you do it every day and it's the same exact thing. Then well, yeah, you're going to be you're, terrible. If you're an ex- well, you, but yeah, most people are absolutely. Okay, so no, I'm intrigued. So we, we, we admit that time is relative. And and time, especially in development, is super relative. So the three point five, how do you uh, how do you get everybody on on a, the same scale? 
So, well, you tell them to ignore time, right? And so they use that scale. And so even though we might have a junior developer who takes twice as long as me, what you do is you aggregate over a period of a couple weeks. You keep track of how many points you do every, every, every iteration. And Pivotal Tracker does this automatically for you. So we have a team of four people, and maybe I do 10 points, someone else does 8 points, someone else does 20 points, and it adds up to a number. Oh, that is genius. And that's velocity. <laughs> that is genius. That makes then, all the sense in the world. And then what Pivotal Tracker does is it keeps an average of your last four iterations and uses <laughs> that to predict the future. So when, when, when you know, asshole over here predicts 3.5, it's going to be 3.5 based on his, his, his historical uh, performance. Mm-hmm. Right. Where, well, for the team's at, historical what do you mean performance. By 3.5. Well, so again, if you if you're picking an an, an arbitrary uh, arbitrary sorry, it's the wine uh, number for a given task, right? Yeah. So there are no fractions. Right. It's just single, it's, okay, it's just three. whole numbers. It's okay, either sorry. three or five. There's no okay. three and a half. No fours. Wait. There's no fours. Nope. It's, it's using using his way. You oh. can make it whatever you want. Right, and the reason and the reason I do the Fibonacci is because people can't tell the difference between a three and a four, and a five and a six. You can right. you can come up with a five and an eight, but you get two developers arguing about the difference between a five and a six, and I just want to hit them with something, <laughs> right? Because it's 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 five. Well, you know? and this is like the whole five star rating system. I hate those things because you like like you're saying, how do you know the difference between a three and a four on a movie? You know, like I, maybe a lot of people disagree with that. But. I disagree completely. I know exactly. <laughs> I do not between. like and your idea of what a four is no, might not match up an, with my idea of a four at no, all. There, I might no. say, well, no, that doesn't even crack your top 20 list or top 50 list. Then that's a three for me, not a four. <laughs> and then we've got this huge mismatch. That's the problem you run into with Pivotal. It's very easy if you don't have very clear definitions People start rank, ranking these tasks with different point values, and it, it, it throws it off a good deal. Yeah, right, so, so it, it sounds not, like that's what your, your Fibonacci solution to that problem is using yeah, the Fibonacci. Right. Remove those little boundary you know, point values. As, and as the thing gets bigger, you know, the, est, the estimates you can use get further apart. And that's just acknowledging what I was doing earlier about whether you're going to drink any wine in late August right, is just acknowledging that the, the bigger something is, the farther away it is, the less we understand it. That is fucking genius. I love that. Great I, job. I tip my hat to you, good sir. <laughs> well, I didn't make it up on my own. It was a process. Take credit of- for it right now. That is all <laughs> yours. No one would ever know. Well, we developed it, that approach at Collaborative Software Initiative before I went to Developer Town, and we use it at Developer Town too. I did who write it. Who, who came up with it originally? Originally, originally. Yeah, now, you, now you let the chicken out of the damn egg. So let's. I, I believe it comes the chicken out of, out of the, the egg. I love something, it. Something like that. <laughs> I believe it comes out of the book uh, Lean Software Development or Agile Estimating and Planning or both. All right. Well, it's genius. I need to read those. So you haven't checked out Pivotal before, Brandon? Uh, You know, I am not. I'm not someone who really cares about project management, Um, and so I avoid it at all. How do you How do you know what tasks to work on next? I just do. 
So you and don't have a list of, what, of any sort? No, I, you know, I had the Corbinizer for a long time, but no, for the most part, it's kind of I, I've surrendered to the present moment and that the problem that I need to work on will present itself fairly quickly, and it usually does. Yeah, I, I can see that. My memory, but no, so no, my but memory kind of sucks, so I really like... You know, there's that thing I know I'm not going to get to in the next two or three days. I've got to put it into something or like I've just I'm juggling too many balls. I'm going to forget it. No. So my premise for that, again, I'm not I'm not discrediting. Yes, there needs to be project management and I need a project manager. But uh, for me, if if I didn't deal with it, then I'm not going to want to deal with it later. So let's see how important it is. And then they'll come back and they'll say, hey, did you happen to see that email I sent you? And then I'm like, oh, no, let me go look at it. Right, so it's right. much more of a of a, uh, of an all inclusive uh, uh, approach to life. <laughs> right, and then That's... when they start yelling at you, no, then... they don't. No, they never yell because then they get to understand. They they know that if I think it's of priority, I do it, and if right. I don't, I don't. <laughs> it's so I have I have yes, I have the up the up vote, down vote, or no vote. <laughs> and it, that's about as much as as my you know pro- brain processes. That's a very Kanban-ish approach. You know, it's very... What's that mean? (laughs) Have you played with Trello, Brandon? No. no. So Kanban... David, you you take a stab at this. You know a little bit better. So uh, Kanban is the idea of of a kind of a pool mentality where you're like pooling things, pooling things as they come up that are the highest priority. Okay. And, um... And I was kind of joking about it being Kanban-ish because I, I don't want any real Kanban people to get all pissed off. But oh fuck them! Uh, we 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 misspeak all the time. It is not a problem. Uh, but it's basically the the one of the lean approaches that was developed in Japan, and this is the Toyota manufacturing system where basically, you know, you. Uh, when you when you become available, you pull something. You also have a work in progress limit, so that you don't have people working on ten things at the same at the same time, which is very counterproductive. And um, anyway, that's basically I call your thing kanban because you're basically always doing the most important thing. Yeah. Well, gotcha. the traditional kanban are literally post-it notes on the wall, right, in columns. Isn't that? Am See, I wrong way, about that? That's way too organized for me. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's what that's I've seen when you, when you check this out and you start reading the Wikipedia page and checking out what it is. It's it's Trello has done this where you have several columns and they move your work moves from left to right, where concepts go in the leftmost column and completed stuff would be in the rightmost column, and then you can have right. any number of columns in between depending on what type of system you've created. You know, there's no strict you know, there must be four columns or anything like that. It's however many you want. And you move between, you move from left to right through the columns. Right. And if you take Kanban and you add the concept of iterations to it, and then you add the concept of a very opinionated state workflow for the tasks, then you have Pivotal Tracker. <laughs> right. So, like, uh, and that's one of the things, the downside of Pivotal Tracker is it, it is very opinionated about the workflow that you are expected to use and um but is that in it but also isn't that one of its endearing points right yes. because they that they made a decision versus you know where you know it seems like every microsoft product that comes out that we just leave it up to the user and ultimately no one makes the fucking decision right that's totally absolutely true it does simplify things because it has a very 
a very standard workflow that starts, it's either not started, and then it goes to started, then it goes to finished, then it goes to delivered, and then it goes to accepted or rejected. And so it, it's very straightforward. You can't change it. Um, but it works. The biggest problem for me is that I, would, I usually like two chances to accept or reject, one for an internal quality control person and then the other one for a client. And it doesn't have that, so we just work around it. And I, I just heard somebody's baby. Yeah, that was mine. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. It's awesome. I love hearing it. So here, the, let the me... nerds are populating. <laughs> Not fast enough, unfortunately. <laughs> here, I'm going to just spit out because I use Pivotal Tracker every day with my uh, software team uh, for one of the big projects I work on. So here's a couple of just quick notes on how we use it. One thing that I really love doing is I create a release in Pivotal, which is you have different types when you create a story, they call it. You can create a feature, a bug, a chore, a release. And so I'll do a release that just sits over in the in the current column, and it's just the push to production release. And if you have stuff that's been completed for that day that needs to get pushed that will is committed to master and will end up getting pushed to production – then you move it up above. Once it's been accepted by the client, it gets moved up above this release point. Or if you create a rake task or a migration or something that needs to be done when the push to production happens, then you create the chore to represent that and move that up above the release. So then I, as the release manager who will do the push to production, can very easily see exactly what needs to be done and what's going to be included in this push of master out to production. And I really like it for that. It's been great for that. Uh, I also really like that the uh, the epics, that new feature that they have, where you can basically uh, before they had tags, but now epics go a little bit beyond. Where we always religiously tagged our stuff, but with the epic, I can easily see just by hovering over the epic how many of the stories have been done for that, what the overall progress is for that. You know, let's like a badge request system is something we've been working on. It's been a pretty big system, so I can see that there are fifty four total stories. 14 of them are left to be done. Six of them are currently being worked on. You know, that sort of view. And it's really nice for that. Are there any quick tips or suggestions on how to use Pivotal that you have, David? Yeah, I try to avoid uh, chores as much as I can because I want the emphasis to be on business value. Yeah, and chores and bugs don't have any point values to them. Right, and you can override that, and I suggest you don't because um, – because points really should reflect a, a sort of a business value. That's another reason I don't tie them to time, right? Because, you know, let's say you have two guys doing the same work and one of them is really slow and you pay them both the same rate by the hour and the slow guy goes off to build a feature and the fast guy does too and and one of them costs 1500 bucks, and one of them costs $750, but the value of their work is the same. And that's another reason why I don't tie points to time at all. That makes because, a lot of sense. Because then you can look at the story and you can and can you can and you can look at it and say, okay, I just got three points and it cost me fourteen hundred dollars because of who did it and how fast they go and stuff like that. And one of the cool things about this is you can look at your team and I don't recommend doing this over short durations, but you can look at it over like a year and say, you know, 
this guy is getting paid X amount and he's only delivering this number of points, you know, how, how does that stack up against my expectation for him? You know, do we need to change our culture? Maybe he's the guy who gets always sucked into all the crises because he's so smart and, or maybe he's on 14 different projects at once or whatever. But if you want to, like, you can look at it from that perspective and say, okay, we've got a problem here where he's not shipping very many points and yet he's costing this much. How do we solve that problem? And, right. you know, occasionally that's because they suck, but most of the time it's because of other factors like they're on too many projects or they're the go to guy in, a, in an emergency. Or, you know, maybe they do a lot of infrastructure support. and There's not like really that. a pause button either. So if you have a bunch of meetings that happen and you've clicked start on this thing, then it's still counting as time that you're working on it. Yeah, I, I guess I don't really use – I don't use that feature at all. I just look at it from the whole aggregate picture of so-and-so does, you know, 800 points a year or whatever. Right. So one of the things I really like about Pivotal is that it integrates with a lot of other services. One of the services that I've been using a lot lately is User Voice, and it integrates with that using a server that you a piece of software you can host yourself. It's up on GitHub. You can go get that, and it'll integrate User Voice into it, and it'll create another column so that all of those, uh, all of the feature requests and all the issues that users are reporting via User Voice show up right inside Pivotal. And you can actually move them right over into the work queue and you can start and, you know, when you start and finish them and everything, that's going to update in user voice, which is really great. So let's, let's talk about user voice a little bit. David, you kind of got me started on this. Why do you like using user voice? I got you started on user voice. I thought I, you I thought got you me did. started on user Maybe. voice. Maybe. <laughs> somebody got me started on it. I thought it was you. I use, actually, I use Zendesk. Okay. Not uh, user voice. <laughs> but you have tried. I've had too many beers, apparently. You've tried to convince me to use user voice on a number of occasions. <laughs> nice. Wow, you really fucked this one up, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. This, this is what I like user voice for, since I am apparently <laughs> the only advocate for it right now. User voice, I never looked at it before because I'm too cheap to pay for the plans on most of these things, but user voice now has a free plan where you can have their tried and true older feature where you have the tab that shows up on the anywhere on the screen. You can put it on the right side or whatever. You click on that, and you can request a feature. You can see all the other features that people who have come to the site and requested features have requested, and you can vote on them, which is really nice because then you can have these features that are like, oh, that one has 25 votes, and then this second one has 12, and then it kind of peters out to fours, threes, twos, and ones, well, it's really clear exactly what I should work on next. I mean, it's great for user-driven development. Your users are just telling you exactly what they need. So user voice is great for that. And now they have a help desk component to it so that you can actually report issues. You can, uh, when you go to type in the issue, it will do a quick search. And on the left-hand side, as you're typing it in, we'll say, oh, well, that one's already been answered. And here's the knowledge base article for it. So it can handle your help desk now, too. Which is what Zendesk is really aimed at, right? Is help desk? Yep, totally is. So and how it, do you how do you use Zendesk? So I use it in um, I use it to do forums because it'll let you create forums and it'll also let you do help desk tickets. And I, I like Zendesk. I I found it years ago and it had single sign on, and um, I I pay for it, but. 
for my users, it means they're logged into TroopTrack. They have some sort of a problem. They just go, you know, they click help desk and they're already signed in. That's and, nice. And I really, uh, I really like that. Um, and, you know, I've thought about switching over to user voice, but in the end I decided I'm, I'm just going to keep on using Zendesk until Mr. Smith is done, and then I'm going to switch everything over to it. What do you pay for Zendesk? I think I pay about $30 a month. Okay. It seems like Tender App is really popular right now. I see a lot of people using that. I am not familiar with that. Is it Tinder like Tinder Skin or Tinder like Let's Start a Fire? Uh, Tender Skin, so Tender App with an E, not an I. So Tender App is used by Heroku. I think Engine Yard uses it. Uh, a bunch of people. Uh, it's the one I end up seeing the most, and I can recognize it pretty quickly. They let you white label it, of course, so you, you don't really see that it's Tender App, but you can tell the way that the form is set up. So there are a couple of good ones out there, whether it's, and Get Satisfaction is another free one. Uh, I've used that for years. I'm actually not really, I wouldn't really recommend it anymore now that User Voice has a free option. But oh it, it, it my used, God. What just happened? My mother had signed up for an app before I did. What is that? Social Cam. <laughs> what is Social Cam? I don't Since know. Since we're completely off the rails I'm here. sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, please, talk amongst yourselves. Again, back to uh, user voice or whatever okay. you were talking about. Back to surfing Reddit, Brandon. Go have fun. Okay. <laughs> Brandon really hates project management. Apparently. <laughs> he's just totally zoned out here. I keep waiting to hear him, like, ripping open envelopes because he's paying bills or something. No. No, I, 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 di- I did just forward all the domains I just bought. <laughs> so, so it's cool. I'm, I'm here. I'm following. All right, Mr. Smith, you, you name-dropped it a second ago. Tell us what Mr. Smith is. This, so thing Mr. is. this is really cool. Mr. Smith is my idea to get rid of uh, help desk software and um, on all the apps that I do. But basically, the, the, idea, the big weakness I see in the help desk software we have uh, is context. They don't really give you the, con- the ability to filter these things by context. So if I go to mint.com, which uses uh, user voice, and I start to type in a question, it searches the whole knowledge base for my to see what similar questions there are. And what I really like them to also consider is what page I'm on and what part of the page I'm on right. in that search. And it doesn't. And um, the other thing I want to do is, with Mr. Smith is I want to I be able to build help desk documentation, I mean, not sorry, help documentation in the areas that need it most. So Mr. Smith helps you collect that information and lets users vote on, hey, I want, I want these questions answered and in the context of your overall application. So then you know that at the point where you're editing settings for an RSS feed in your app, people are confused. So that's, that's the concept behind Mr. Smith to allow you to then take that, look at the ranks, and then the ranks of all the different places where people are confused, and then target the documentation that you write about your product on those things that are most confusing rather than hiring a technical writer to just cover everything, every feature of your product. You focus on the ones that users don't understand the second they look at it. And this is something you're developing, right? 
Yes, it is. And here, Brandon, check this out. Where, where did you, so what kind of gave you the idea that what catalyzed this for you to get you started on this? On Mr. Smith? Yeah. Uh, I think the first time I thought about it was actually when I was searching for something on mint.com, but you seem to be, you seem to remember something else. I thought in talking to you, I thought that. Are we sure that you were talking to the same person that you thought you were actually talking to? Maybe not. But so we had talked about something similar to this on a previous episode of the Talentopoly oh, yeah, podcast. You're right. It was a Talentopoly. That's what I thought. It was a All Talentopoly right. podcast that gave me the idea. I right. Totally, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jared. I totally screwed that up. <laughs> he, totally, he totally handballed that to you, and you just dropped it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you remember talking about this, Brandon? I wasn't even paying attention, and I would have probably been made to pick up better than you just did. Yeah, you got to go to the rim with two hands in the playoffs. <laughs> that's all there is to it. Oh, that's all. Awesome. Do you recall talking about that, Brandon? I don't even know what we're talking about, guys. Okay. You're just so there, there in was a fog a, of wine over there. I know. Yeah, I apologize. Was a, there was a podcast that was talking about the need to like focus your documentation efforts, I think. Yep. And not writing help docs for everything. But right. rather, and this is what we talked oh, about, yeah, Brandon. We yeah, had the, yeah, yeah. the little question mark icon. And yeah, you click exactly. on it, and it's like, oh, what is your question? And we yeah. haven't written the help doc yet. We'll write the help part for it if you actually have a question about why write help docs for parts of your site that are just self-explanatory and nobody ever is confused by. Copyright Brandon Corbin, 2003. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. right. Yeah, and so. so that same day that that podcast came out, I remember now, I was uh, doing taxes on TurboTax. And, and you're like, they, what could be and, more boring than doing taxes? <laughs> I know. Right. I'll listen and, to the Town Lovely podcast. <laughs> and, they, and they had all these questions on the side, and I was actually really frustrated with the lack of context about them. And right. then I started thinking about your podcast, and I thought... Which was the only episode you'd listen to, right? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> <laughs> that is serendipity See, right you there, my friends. if you listen to more of them, you'd have like 10 businesses going right now. Yeah, I'd be in a lot of trouble if I had 10 <laughs> businesses going right now. There's an official moratorium from my family on new businesses. I can't start <laughs> anymore. That's amazing. All right, let's see Let's see if we can get through some of these other tools we have listed here fairly quickly. So we, you've listed Get Exceptional on here. Tell us about Get Exceptional. Get Exceptional is kind of like a precursor to a, to a help desk in that when your app goes bad, it sends you an email, and it includes this, the trace, so you can see what happened. And then you can go in and you can close. It basically is a little trouble ticket system, and so when things go wrong, it creates little creates tickets. You can see how often something goes wrong. Like you have a, you know, maybe you get a nil where you don't expect something to be nil. Maybe yeah. that happens four times a day, and so you can see that it's happened four times a day for the last thirty days, and then you better go fix it. Right? Yeah, because and why did it take you 30 days? Exactly. <laughs> you should be you on know, top of that. It's funny because when we launched Troop Track, um, it was live for months, and I, nobody was buying it, and I couldn't figure out why. And I was like, I, I know we have some, uh, I know we have some bugs and stuff, but why won't anybody buy Troop Track? And they couldn't and, buy it. Well, no, I went through the, I started going through the logs and like it was just stack trace after stack trace after stack trace. Ooh. 
And then people from North Korea trying to hack my server and then stack trace and stack trace and stack trace. And it was just, it was insane. And so then I started, you know, asking around because at that point I was kind of new to Rails and I'd been a project manager for years. And so I was new to programming again, you know, and, uh, and someone told me to use Get Exceptional. And so I put that in there and I was getting like 25 emails a day from Exceptional every time someone hit that we're sorry something went wrong page. Right. Any exception it, that gets thrown that's not caught will get emailed to you. Yeah, it was totally insane. And that was when I realized that Troop Check really, really sucked back then. <laughs> I mean, it was it was just crashing all the time. It was, I was amazed that we got anybody to pay for it. At you, that you bring up a great point, though, that on anybody's launch list, you absolutely should have some kind of exception catching emailing service in there before you launch your service. You need to know when this happens. Yeah, it's just a standard part of, of our stack now. I think Oh I absolutely. Have, it's nine dollars a month and I think I probably am paying about forty bucks a month right now to exceptional because of all the different because they charge you by the app. So mm -hmm. another one to check out would be Airbrake. That's a really nice one. Uh, I started out using Get Exceptional. Talonopoly actually got featured on their blog, which was awesome. But I have since moved on to uh, Airbrake, and, I, and I've been really happy with that service. So it started out, it used to be Hoptoad Notifier, but now it's Airbrake. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I would check them out. I'll have to check that out. I thought I thought it was, you know, you were going to make us talk about video ripping software when I saw you type Airbrake. I was thinking handbrake. Handbrake. Oh, right. Handbrake. Got it. Handbrake and Netflix. Yeah. Never mind. What is intercom? So what intercom is, is is it's kind of like Chartbeat in a way. If you're not familiar with Chartbeat, we can talk about that too. But yeah. intercom lets you interact with your users, and then it keeps track of um, those interactions and creates like a this is how much they love you score. Ooh. One of the cool things about it is it also lets you throw in um, pop-ups on your app like the first time a user comes to a page. And you can specify the first time a user comes to this URL, show them this message. And then it can keep track of how many times a user has seen it. It shows it on a, on a map of the United States where all your users are. It shows you the last time they logged in, you know, what your, how much love there is between the two of you. How does it know? I don't quite get the uh, the love thing. Can you explain that a little bit more? Um, yeah. So you know, you have this little JavaScript that you embed, and then it and then it uh, does a kind of a. It's almost chat like in that you can send them a message, and it pops up when they get it, and then they can send you a message, and it comes back. It's not like real chat. Okay. Um, but. And it sounds kind of annoying, honestly. It, that aspect of it is, and I don't use it, but that's how how many times you go back and forth is is how they figure out how much you love each other. Hmm. Okay. I'm not a fan of that particular feature, and it's on, it's a beta product right now, so it's free. But I do like the ability to pop up uh, messages to users. You can even have a pop-up message for a specific user. Really? So when they log in, Joe... Joe, I can't even make up a name. I haven't even been drinking. Joe Smith. Joe Smith gets wow, a message. Wow, that way, wait, wait, wait. You you could pick every fucking name out of the book, and you <laughs> picked Smith. Why not? That's my yeah. usual go-to. How about Johnny Apple? Johnny, yeah, Johnny Apple seed or whatever. And you know that you know that the last time 
Johnny Appleseed logged in that he got an error, right? Because you saw it in Get Exceptional, and it had, you know, you could get his user ID from the trace or whatever. So you go into, into Intercom IO, and you write this nice message about how I'm sorry that you had this problem. By the way, you should know that it's fixed. And then he logs in, bam, it pops up, and he says, wow, that Dave is the coolest guy ever. That is actually really cool. I like that. What about like a maintenance message or, you know, where the server is going to be going down? Would you use something like this to let everybody know that? Yeah, you could totally do that. And you can set uh, messages to expire as well. Man, I'm going to I'm going to look into this more. I actually think that would be a lot nicer. A lot of people roll their own, you know, little message bar at the top and they, you know, almost anywhere you work and you work on an app, they always tell you we need a way to message our users and like they want a little CMS tool like, you know. I've been asked to do that so many times. I would love to just be able to plug this in and do this instead. What's the one that I use? What the hell is it? Sorry, talk amongst yourselves. You're know, ex-jobs. We will hold continue on, to on. talk amongst ourselves, Brandon. <laughs> so another cool product I use is Chartbeat. I love and, Chartbeat. And yeah, they just Chartbeat did a redesign that kicks ass. It is amazing. Yeah, it is really a big step forward. It's pretty cool. Yep. I was almost on the verge of not continuing my subscription because of the real-time stats now in Google Analytics. And then they came out with the redesign. Like, oh, I'm hooked again. I'm addicted to Chartbeat. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about, like, taking the Google Analytics JavaScript out of my app just because I like Chartbeat. Mm, really? <laughs> but then, but, you know. There's stuff you can't get, though, in right, Chartbeat right. that you need GA for. Every now and then, I just want to go look at certain things that are only available in GA. But most of the time, I have uh, I have Chartbeat up all day long in my browser. Just as actually, an ego stroke? Well, no, I just <laughs> like to keep an eye on, on TroopTrack. But yeah. they have an API, too, so you can pull, like, let's say you have four different apps all using uh, Chartbeat. So you can pull the graphs using the API. And what I really want to do is I want to mount a monitor up in my office wall that all it does is show Chartbeat all the time. There you go. How many, just out of curiosity, how many users do you usually see concurrently on Chartbeat? On TroopTrack, only 17 is the record. Oh, very cool. What, like, what's the record on any app that you've monitored it with? Well, I only track uh, TroopTrack, TechDarkSide, and, Which is your uh, blog, right? Very right, nice, very good blog, by the way. And that one, Tech Dark Side's gotten up quite a bit higher than that, but I don't remember what it was. And then my uh, other business that isn't really live yet, AuthorGate, and it only gets like one or two. But it's cool right because on. when you blog, this is one of the reasons why I want Chartbeat on the wall. And it, the idea for this came to me from Carl Erickson at Atomic Object. But uh, he's try- he tries to get everybody in his organization to blog. And one of the things that helped motivate everybody to do that is they have Chartbeat up on the wall. And they can watch the, the way the numbers change right after they publish a post. And that's just, it's just kind of cool and it's motivating because oh, you publish a post. And then all of a sudden the meter goes up, you know, and it stays up. Um, you know, like a few months ago on Tech Dark Side. I had a little interaction with uh, Dave Hanemeyer Hansen, and that was like a record day for me. And so I was sitting there watching Chartbeat all day long, and it was kind of cool. It's a good feeling. Have yeah. you guys seen the Google Analytics real-time beta? Yeah. Yep. 
I, I use it regularly. I still prefer Chartbeat. It gives you a lot more information than the GA real time. Yeah. And it like down to even knowing whether they're reading or writing. It it's scary like how much info it gives you. It's really cool. Mm. And it, it includes the social aspect. I know GA just they just put some social metrics in there. And Google Analytics has definitely got more and more features in there that are fantastic, but you have to have you seen the Chartbeat dashboard before, Brandon? Um, never. I'm signing up right now. It's just so well done that I I can't give it up. And I also love the iPhone app. I use that. So I'll just be maybe walking to lunch or something like, oh, I'm going to check what, how many people are on Townopoly and what pages they're surfing on, how long they've been on there. And it also measures engaged time now with the redesign. So it's mm-hmm. like, oh, people have spent a total of 16 hours on your site already today. Like, oh, that's awesome. It's yeah, just, that is pretty cool. It's, it gives you more than what Google, Google Analytics real-time gives you. It really does. And it's $10 for up to five sites. I think it's probably worth the money. Because the more data you have on your apps and how people are using it, that's just gold. I mean, that's what you need. See, this podcast, you know, like the first one that I listened to, is totally paying off already because I recently switched from Android back to the iPhone. And I totally forgot that Chartbeat has an app. I'm installing it right now. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they would update it. it. It's getting a little crufty. It's, it's stale. Yeah, it doesn't have the best. I mean, you have to, like, click click and there's like little spinners with each click and you know even if you go right back and then you click on the same like you know i go back click on talentopoly.com again and go forward it doesn't just like oh i was right here it has to spin again and reach out and get the new it doesn't cache anything at all it doesn't look the best they should go and update it but still google analytics on tablet or ios is just a horrid experience. It's gotten better now that they moved away from Flash, where GA recently started doing graphs in HTML5, which is great. But they still, it's not a good experience on the iPhone. There's no easy way to check my Google, Google Analytics stats on the iPhone. It, there's, it's actually a, there's, a, there's a couple apps that are actually pretty good. I use Ego. I've used that a little bit. I've looked in some, into some of the others. They're, yeah, I guess I would agree they're pretty good, but I want better than pretty good. I want pretty. I want better than pretty. I want great, Brandon. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) So I I think Google really needs to get on the ball and create some mobile apps for Google Analytics, but that's just me. All right, let's let's go through some of the other ones here. So another big part of project management is staying in communication with your team, and whether they're local in the same offices as you, maybe they all have their own office with a window and a door, and that's great, or they're working remotely. Uh, online chat systems have really come into their own. GitHub uses them with great success. I know the uh, the Fog Creek guys are using chat. It seems like a lot of development shops now are, are swearing by things like Campfire and HipChat. Have you? Do you guys use these things to stay in touch with other developers that you're working on a project with? Yeah, I've used uh, Skype and IRC quite a bit. What do you, for IRC? Are you just on Freenode or where are you? Just on Freenode. Um, in the past, we've set up uh, a bot to keep, you know, to record everything and dump it in a log so that we can search it later. Yep, which is yep. what HipChat and Campfire will just do for you, which is kind of right. nice. And if you don't really love using a client-side IRC client, then the web-based thing for Freenode really looks ancient 
kind of like circa 1995 in my opinion you know what i'm talking about the web node totally do, yeah. client like ah so we've been using HipChat, and i really can't recommend it enough i'm a huge fan of HipChat. you can send files through it it does automatically keep that log you can search through it you can mention people in it so if i mention one of the devs where it shows he's away or he's just not even signed on at all then he's going to get an email saying, hey, Anthony, you were just mentioned in this room on HipChat. And so then he'll come in within like the next 10 or 15 minutes, you know, if he's if he's just checking his email or whatever and sees that, he'll come in and then I can have the conversation with him. So I really love the mentions. There's just a lot of nice features inside HipChat, and I would imagine Campfire is a lot of the same. Yeah, and Atlassian and the makers of HipChat, they're an awesome company for remote collaboration products. They just they got bought by them recently. Yeah, so um, they weren't like always I, with them, right? They they were they uh, started off on their own. I think they were a Y Combinator startup. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, but, they're really um, cool, and they've got a an Air app. It works. I've got a guy that uses Jabber, and he just integrated it right with that. It, it integrates with GitHub. It integrates with uh, with our Jenkins continuous integration server. So when builds fail, we get the message right into the correct room. You know, all That's of that awesome. integration is just sweet. Another one to check out is Grove.io. If you do like using IRC, they've basically, they use IRC, but they have a nice web client that doesn't look like it was built in 1995, and they have a <laughs> mobile app, and they do have some of those integrations as well. And if you do want to use one of the standalone IRC clients, then it's going to work with it as well. So... But what is, yeah, how really valuable like to, do you think chat is? I'd really is? like to embed IRC room in Troop Track. That could be cool. Can you do that with uh, Grove? Do you know? I would. I don't know, but I would look into it. I think that would be worth looking into because they they will automatically log stuff, and they're just providing a lot of that convenience around IRC that's not just there by default. Yeah, I mean it's not hard to set up a an IRC bot to log your room. Right. But. Um, you know, why bother if you don't need to? Speaking of IRC bots, Hubot can be a lot of fun. GitHub created it, and you can you can put it into HipChat, Campfire, IRC, and then it can uh, you can tell it you can teach it commands and integrate it with things like your CI server, like Jenkins or something. You can tell it to go off and do those things, or you know whatever. You can do cool commands to it and teach it things and just do humorous shit with it too. So Basecamp is in here. Did you put that in our notes, David? I did not. Who put Basecamp in there? Did I? Uh... <laughs> yeah. Someone's been drinking too much. I don't think I put that in there. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I did. But Basecamp is, I'm actually not a fan of Basecamp. I know a lot of people use Basecamp for project management. And they use it to deal with clients. And most of the time that I've ever used Basecamp, it kind of starts off where you're excited to use it for a week or two. You put a lot of stuff in there. Their to-do list management is really limited, in my opinion. But like, it just gets stale, and people stop using it after a few weeks. Have you guys used it at all? Um, I've messed around with it, but never used it like on a real project. Okay. Yeah, I really wouldn't consider it. If you're managing a, a software team, I don't think Basecamp's all that great. If you're managing a bunch of non-techie, clients that maybe have used Basecamp in the past then it might be a good fit but otherwise i'd probably check something else out uh, what do you what do you recommend for like wikis and 
you know, basically like uh, just a place to keep, you know, all the like knowledge and procedures and crap like that that you develop throughout a project. That is a perfect segue into Google Docs, our next note here in the show notes. I love Google Docs and we do, we have folders in there uh, for our different projects. We'll do subfolders within those. And we do document a lot of stuff. So we'll document like our Git practice so that any new person coming onto the team can see how we use Git. And it, it's a 10 page document that really spells it out via stories. Like, you know, here's what I, here's my situation and here's how I do what I, you know, this is when I rebase. This is how I switch between branches. This is how I name branches. This is how I know when to put a branch into remote or when to just keep it local. And we have all of that in a, in a Git document that's easy to find. We just share that folder out with all the team members based on what projects they're a member of. So I, I actually don't go the media wiki route or a wiki route. I just use Google Docs, and I love it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of writing up a this is how we roll page you know, to kind of let people understand how the workflow goes. Right. Um, that makes sense. I like, I, I like Google Docs for standalone documents. Um, and I hate Google Sites. I, I oh, find I've never used that. incredibly frustrating. Um, there are just certain times where I want to, like, capture a discussion about a feature you know, like uh, between me and another developer, or if you're doing like set-based dives on a particular story, if, do you know what those are? No. So in a set-based dive, is let's say you're doing something that's never been done before, either by you as a company or you as a bunch of developers or at all. Maybe nobody's ever done it, right? And, and so you're not sure how to do it. Or maybe you're evaluating multiple products you know, maybe you're trying to decide what to use for an embedded chat, right? So a set-based dive is where you take two or more developers and they all go off and attempt to, to do it via a different approach, right? And um, so, for instance, Toyota built their first hybrid car this way. They had seven different teams trying to come up with a hybrid motor. And one of the teams won at the end and that was the basis for Toyota's first hybrid car. But of, those, but of those seven teams, all of them had input into the final design. So they learned things from all seven teams that became part of the car. And okay. so, so that's what a set-based dive is. And when you do that, the whole point is to learn. So I like to have a place to keep you know, stuff like what did we learn from these dives and then have discussion about it. And so I, I find... On my projects, I'd like to have a wiki or something where it's easy to author up pages um, like that and then have comments and crap like that. My favorite is Confluence from Atlassian, which was why I was so excited when you, when you <laughs> mentioned, mentioned uh, HipChat. I mentioned HipChat because they are, you know, Atlassian Confluence is a really good um, wiki that I found um, easy to use. It's, it's expensive. But I really like it. I'll have to check that out. Uh, I've done wikis before. I actually made a, a whole website about it, a public-facing website that's gone now. But And then I've used it at different companies. You know, I always excitedly set up MediaWiki. And yeah. I, I, again, it's like the Basecamp thing, though, that the it, it's it takes a lot of effort to continue to add to the wiki and to do it right. I mean, things like Wikipedia are just constantly being re-standardized and you have these the strong core 
of members that are going through and marking stubs as such and saying this is how we format it and this is what's required and really curating that and maintaining it. And I feel like that's what a wiki really needs to be very successful. Otherwise, it just kind of gets crushed under the weight of having to create all the interlinking pages and making it full, you know, putting all the full amount of information in there. So that's where I'll just say, hey, you know, the, the guy who's kind of in charge who came up with how we use Git and our standard practice for it, hey, can you just go off and author a Google Doc and then we'll review it and we can insert comments and have a side discussion on certain parts that might need to be refined or more detail needs to go in there. So there, it's collaborative and we can still very effortlessly, all of us put our edits into it like a wiki would be, but we don't have to set up any type of wiki server. We don't have to link that doc to a different doc. You know, we don't have to maintain a navigational structure as well. So it's right. just, just we remove you, that weight from it. You just have to be able to find what you're looking for. Yeah, which and, I mean, we don't have that many documents and right. folders and folders and files have been around forever. And you can search. So I don't yeah. find it too heavy to try to find something. Yeah, that doesn't work for me, but it's cool. <laughs> you right can on. roll your own way. Yeah, right on. Um, one of the things that is true regardless of which approach you go, you got to have somebody who's willing to give it a smackdown every now and then and just go in and clean out the cruft and fix crap up. Because even if you're using Google Docs, you're going to get some documents that are stale and aren't really applicable anymore. And so for like, for you, who, if you've been on the project for a while, well, that doesn't matter because they're going to fall to the bottom of your list in Google Docs anyway. Right. Because of the way Google Docs prioritizes documents. And I don't create that many documents either. I probably should create more, but I don't. But, the, you know, someone who's new is coming in and they get shared, they get all the documents shared. They don't know the important ones from the out of date ones. And so every now and then you got to have someone who just goes in and does it and gives it a nice solid smackdown. I like that. Gets rid of some, all the cu- crap. some curation and maintenance has to be done. Yep. So here's here's just a quick overview of how I use it uh, for a current client. We have the client's name as the top folder. Under that, we have the Git practices that we use. We have the uh, unit testing is another document. So those are our only two actual documents that pretty much everybody on the team should read. Then under that, uh, under the main folder, we have like badge request will be a folder. And in there, I have two. I use the new diagrams. Uh, document type in Google Docs, and I just did the nastiest, dirtiest workflow type of uh, diagram in that using the just arrows and boxes and circles and text, but it worked. And so I've got two of those in there, and then I have I, def- I have an actors document that defines who the different types of users are and gives them definitions. So when we say the badge approver or the sponsor, you can quickly look in the actors doc and see what the definition for those user types are. And that's a that's actually about it. I don't have much more in the Google Docs for that entire client, actually. Those are about the only documents in there. So we use Pivotal for any of our Pivotal and HipChat is where most like you're talking about these deep dives and stuff. We'd probably just have those discussions inside HipChat and they're archived in there and searchable. You know, yeah, it's, sure. it's not the most structured way to do it, but that's probably how we'd end up doing it. And then Pivotal's anytime anything becomes a task that anybody's gonna spend time on, it's going into Pivotal. And we can have yeah. comment discussions in there too. Yeah, I think I think that's fine. I huh. I wouldn't use it just simply because a lot of what I do is product development, 
And a product that lives for four years or 10 years is going to accumulate a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> True. And then it ends up becoming like at when I worked at an insurance company that has a big, uh, a big uh, workforce in Indianapolis that I won't name. Uh, it rhymes with Liberty Mutual. <laughs> but, um, but when I worked there, we had a shared drive, right? And it was just totally a mess. It oh, told- we, yeah, they do the same thing at the client, that, the big client okay. that I work for. So, oh, my that, God. That's how I see Google Docs becoming. It's like this like this huge, almost like a shared drive with that's, all that That's stuff. very fair. Yeah, I could see that. That's but, a fair uh, statement. With, with improvements in terms of search, and you don't have to worry about whether or not whoever saved that spreadsheet used a different version of Excel. Right, you right. don't have that kind of trouble, so it's not as bad. But I just see the organization ending up down that route. I can see that. So, do we even need to mention GitHub? Doesn't everybody know about GitHub at this point? Yeah, for one more thing, and that is, you know, where I like to put my where, how we roll documentation on GitHub as a GitHub. markdown formatted readme. Yeah, sweet. I, you know, like or as a wiki page or something like that, so that. Um, if I give someone access to the source code, there's a page telling them this is how we roll. This is how we use branches. I like to put. I like that a lot. For guidelines in there. Yeah, that might actually be the better place to put some of those Google Docs we were just talking about. I like it. All right, and then for time tracking, do you do any type of other than Pivotal? Are you doing anything like Harvest or Billings or any of those apps for time tracking? We used Harvest for a while. And it was it was fine. I mean, it's time tracking, right? It's not, not sexy. It's not sexy, but you know, sometimes it's got to be done. Sometimes. Uh, would you ever have management using that as to gain insight into what you were working on, or were they more directed to just look at Pivotal to see what you're working on, or did they not really look into what you were doing? Um. So we we kind of tried using. Ah, oh crap! I can't remember the name of it. We gave up. We just used this big whiteboard on Mike Kelly's house. Okay. And it has everything on it. Interesting. And that works. It, it's not that complicated, you know. You just Right. You're on two projects. You're on one project. This is how long. We write it on a board. I like it. It's low tech, but it works. Yeah. Okay. So we're introducing a new segment to this uh, episode of the podcast and it's we've had a lot of fun talking about a specific topic on the each of the last couple of episodes and I think that's working really well and getting a guest on each of the episodes but we kind of miss I don't know about you Brandon but I kind of miss talking about some of the cool links that are getting posted to the site every week and there's yeah. some there's some useful stuff going up on there I mean you know you started using Zurb Foundation because we mentioned it on a podcast you know months ago yeah. so and it, that's a big problem is that there's so much of this good stuff happening all the time. And to try and stay on top of it is really difficult. So that was one of the key tenets of the podcast when we started. It was to try to keep people up to date on what's been happening. So hopefully this new segment, which is going to be a very quick segment, segment we're just going to go through somewhere between five and ten links that you should probably know about that happened since the last episode that got posted to the website we're just going to kind of rattle them off and not even get into much of a discussion on each one of them, but just mention them, tell you to check them out if you're interested. So that is our noteworthy links segment that we're starting. We're going to try that out with this episode. And do our, it. We're our, talking about it. Let's do it. Our first link, Brandon, do you want to introduce it? 
No. I will do it then. <laughs> You've been doing too much talking during this podcast. I know. I got to bring it I think I heard the head go thunk a couple times. <laughs> Seriously. You got number two, so start looking at number two there, Brandon. All right. All right. Link number one is delight.io. Record and replay your iOS apps user sessions. A little bit of code you can add into your iOS app. You don't have to redesign any part of your app. It's just going to record all the gestures and the screens that your users go to. And then in an HTML5 compatible browser, you can replay those uh, sessions and actually watch users go through your app, use the gestures, the clicks, the swipes, everything, and see exactly how they're using your app. I think this is really neat. And it requires almost no effort to put this into your app and start gaining this information. I'm a huge advocate of getting as much data as you can about how people are using your app. And this is great for app developers. So I would recommend checking that out. They're brand new. Brandon, cool. What do you got? All right. So I'm talking about MailChimp uh, blueprint, email blueprints. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's a gigantic list of a bunch of HTML that fits really nicely into the uh, the email templates at MailChimp. So if you want three columns, two columns with a left side, two columns with a right side, two columns, one, two, two column, two, one, a bunch of different. I mean, like, and, and how many do we have? Can we see how many files we have here? It looks like oh, maybe yeah. 60. This is like the dark art, right? Making HTML emails. This isn't, I mean, we're used to doing nice CSS and HTML and having yeah. external style sheets and all that goes out the fucking window when you're doing HTML emails. Yes, it does. You so this, like, def- this definitely makes it a lot easier on you. Yeah, you can learn. You can just immediately go out and say, oh, I'm going to use that and build off of it. And they already have built in handling all those gotchas, like you know, Exchange uh, or Outlook 2003, I mean. Is your email going to look right in that? Well, check out these email blueprints. And if you go off those, yes, it's going to look right in everything from Gmail to Outlook to whatever. Well, it's never going to look 100% right. As close um, as possible. And and, and hopefully uh, MailChimp delivers it. The, yeah, MailChimp is a great service. So if you want them no, to deliver it, they will I, do it. They, no, you know what? I, I, I'm going to call foul here because MailChimp is an awesome product, an awesome company. But I can tell you 90% of the time, the email that gets sent out of there gets caught by spam. Really? Oh, yeah. And, no and no so deliverability use- guarantee? No, oh, no, it's 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 utter because most of the time the um, the confirmation email gets caught in spam, and so you have to hey. put on your email, hey, make sure you check your spam folder, and you go through and you do all the DKIM I am shit, you do all of the setup, and it still doesn't work. Where I go and I set up postmark in about two minutes, and every single email that has ever come out of my damn system is delivered. Postmark is great. I use uh, I use SendGrid, but I love both of them. Yeah, yeah, I use Postmark for ViewU and love um, it. It's killer. Yep. All right, next one is bootbox.js. These are alert confirmation of flexible dialogues for Twitter's Bootstrap framework. I love that Bootstrap is getting its own targeted plugins now. Like, this oh, is becoming yeah. a fearsome little front-end framework. Yeah, they're nice looking, too. Yep. If you want to get crazy with your alert boxes, confirmation dialogues, whatever... You might want to check this out if you need to go beyond what Bootstrap offers. Uh, they they work a, a lot like Zurb's um, uh, uh, reveal uh, thing, and Sweet. it's exactly the same exact kind of format. Android was ported to C Sharp by Xamarin. Is that how you say that company name? These are the guys that do Mono. Yeah, and they for fun, you know, because this is just a fun little project that 
you know, holy shit, I can't imagine doing this. They actually ported over a million lines of Android code over to C Sharp so that they didn't have to run it through the Dalvec VM. Huh. They could run it on the Mono VM. And for various reasons, which they go into in this post, they talk about why Mono is a much faster VM than the standard Java VM, uh, mainly because they didn't have to worry about backwards compatibility with Java stuff from 95 or 96. They were able to make a much faster VM. So they do show benchmarks in here, and Android does run much faster as a C-sharp uh, <laughs> code base. Uh, they said this was just wah, for wah, fun. Wah. They were just trying to learn something. Some of what they learned will be incorporated back into Mono Touch and Mono for Android. So there will be some benefits to come back to those other products. But this is not something they're going to continue to actively do. It's all up on GitHub, so people can start to check it out, maybe carry the torch. But really cool blog post. I recommend you check that out if you're interested in mobile development at all. Sketch, a vector graphics app with a beautiful interface. Oh, Oh, have you had you seen this thing before, dude? I've 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 I was gonna bring it up because I wasn't sure where I found it, and apparently I found it on Talonopoly. <laughs> and um, I've downloaded it. I'm gonna buy it, and regardless of how much it costs. Actually, I'm gonna buy it because this it's is $50. the first fifty real, bucks oh, on the App Store. No question that because this is the first real uh, fireworks alternative. Yep, it's it's really nice. Not It doesn't try to be the kitchen sink. What it does do is it tries to be that Photoshop or that Illustrator or that Fireworks for UE designers and icon designers. It's very oh. targeted. Yeah, no, it's it, no. It, this is a killer app. They've they've done they've done everything absolutely right. Um, now again, I've only designed like three or four icons, and I haven't done a full UI yet, but I will be shortly. Um, but so far, this has been like the first application that I've run into that I'm like, oh my god, this is an actual real competitor to the Fireworks Photoshop uh, workflow. And what's noteworthy is that they just launched version 2.0, so this is not a brand new program. They're already on version 2.0, so go check that out. Filepicker.io, a better file uploader. This is neat because you don't just have to use that standard file field in your forms anymore you can just pull in filepicker.io and when somebody clicks on this they're going to be able to bring files in from dropbox from a url or from their local system whatever this is just a universal file uploader that supports drag files into it all kinds of nice features that i think is just a much better file upload experience and this is brand new so the really cool stuff and i hope that this really continues to evolve and and see where it goes it's cool. Crud Bones is a boilerplate template for Node.js projects for MySQL or Mongo-based Node.js projects. Woo. Yeah. Which I didn't know that Node.js projects ever used MySQL. I thought they were all like very Mongo-based. But this is just kind of a... The guy almost doesn't want to call it a boilerplate. It's called a skeleton, a template, whatever you want. It's just a collection of a bunch of things that you're going to need to get up and running with your Node.js project. And try to bring them all together and make it really easy for you to to build those, you know, get those pieces just in place immediately. So that might help with uh, people getting Node.js projects together quickly. For the typography people out there, check out the design of a signage typeface. This article blew me away. It's on I Love Typography. And it talks about this guy that was on this road trip and he started noticing total typography geek here. But I think this is really cool. I'm not super into typography. I wish I knew a lot more about it. But he was on a road trip 
and just noticing the typography used on signs along the road and in the usability of it. How far away can I start to recognize what that, you know, can I read what that sign says and how could I make this better? How can I make the ultimate typeface for signs? And so he goes through the entire experience of how he designs it and really gets into the details. So anybody who has any interest in, in typefaces at all should definitely check that article out. Do you, AWS Marketplace, uh, what do you use to host on, Brandon? I'm not quite sure I know what you what your I do uh, a little bit of Rackspace and a little bit of EC2. Okay. Um, I really like EC2s for like really getting down in the weeds. Um, and Rackspace is just kind of like a no-brainer. So I use all my just personal shit. I put it on there. Um, uh, but the Marketplace is really cool, uh, theoretically. Uh, so I, I went through and I actually bought a... Um, uh, what the hell was it? Oh, not a bot, but a WordPress uh, multi-site thing that I installed. And the main problem is, is because it, all these people are customizing, the, you know, these various versions of Linux, that nothing's in the places that you expect it to, and the documentation is yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is just kind of hit or miss. So I, I launched three or four instances, and I'm like, eh, and I just broke it every damn time. Um, and so I ended up giving up, but I think that they've got something, you know, they've got something pretty cool here and they have made it insanely easy to just click a button and launch a damn server. Right. Cause part of the problem is, I mean, Amazon is this blank slate where you with EC2, you can install anything you want, but you have to install yep. what you want. Yep. And so those are called AMIs, the Amazon machine instances. And with the marketplace, there are people that have already, and they've had this in certain, They've already had the ability for you to rent AMIs in the past, but now they're making it really easy in a catalog called the Marketplace to find all this stuff. And you can go out there and you can set up a server farm even with all the different pieces, the database part, with the front end pieces, with the caching layer, whatever. And you can just use these already built AMIs that cost you some extra amount of money to rent on top of the standard EC2 fees. That's what the marketplace is selling you. Yeah, but but it, but it really, it, it doesn't have to cost you anything. That's some of them good. are free. Yeah, some. I mean, there's there's a good amount of them that are some free. Some are like two cents or five cents an hour. Yeah, and and so you, but as a developer, you could sit back and say, okay, I could kind of design out this architecture and be able to charge two bucks a month on top of it. Absolutely. And they do all the billing. So as you guys are sitting there thinking, say, well, shit, I could build up a you know a, a, a video editing suite that you could literally just click and and bring up you know nine or ten servers and you're ready to rock and roll. Yep. And they all know and, how to talk to each other and they have different roles yeah. and everything. So it's it's pretty bad i think it's pretty we haven't even yet I mean, the marketplace i think will go and it'll go huge where you could have i mean what was it the cancer uh, co- uh company who was trying to run cancer drug screening they brought up like it was like thirty eight thousand yep. dollars or something like that for like a couple um, of hours and then they yeah then they spun them all down yeah, yeah. i mean so so the stuff that people are going to do once they realize the power that they have and the ability to make money i think are going to be pretty impressive yeah so I've got my eye on that. I'm excited to see where people go with that. And if you're a developer that has a lot of experience in EC2, this could be a great opportunity to make some money. Go out there and create some AMIs that work well together, or you know, or maybe even just one AMI that has a really great stack configured on it, and you might get some money out of it. Number 10, our last link, is Firefox no longer displays favicons in address bar. The uh, Mozilla team has decided to 
Nick's displaying custom favicons in the address bar because people were getting scammy with it and showing padlocks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> make you think awesome. that they had SSL certificates. <laughs> oh shit! That's so they brilliant. said enough of that. We will continue to display the favicon in the tab, but we're not going to do it in the address bar anymore. And I, this kind of brings up the question of well, how important are favicons going to be in the future? And I think they're still necessary. We had a good discussion on Talentopoly about this, where you know it does help you tell the tabs apart, but that's about mm-hmm. all that they are good for these days. That's Maybe a bookmark. Important. Have you seen? Have you tried to use tabs without the fave icons on there? I haven't, and I, so yeah, I would agree that they're still important. It's still worth the developer's time to go and put them into the website. Yeah, but yeah, it, it is one blow to the favicon, the uh, awesome favicon. Hmm. But anyway. That wraps it up for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, go on to iTunes. Leave us a glowing review. We would love to have some reviews on there. And until next time, happy hacking. <laughs>